0: Hello, this is FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the Dot Esports Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ahmad Khan of CNET. Nintendo issued a sort of cease and desist order to the Smash World Tour, a circuit of Smash Bros. Melee and Ultimate tournaments taking place around the world, which would culminate in a final event. The Smash World Tour was technically never affiliated or officially licensed by Nintendo, but organizers VG Bootcamp, or VGBC, had been operating on a wink and nod basis with the video game maker to allow the series to continue, the Esports organization said. In a long statement, the Smash World Tour said it was blindsided by Nintendo's decision to cancel the finals was strung along by the brand behind Mario for months and accused Panda Global CEO, an eSports organization that focuses on fighting and single-player games, Dr. Alan Bunny, of twisting arms and threatening torment organizers throughout the year that signed to be part of the Smash World Tour. Panda Global has its own circuit titled the Panda Cup, and unlike the Smash World Tour, is officially licensed by Nintendo. In one instance, the Smash World Tour alleges that Dr. Allen threatened Beyond the Summit, another esports event organizer, of having its broadcast license with Nintendo revoked for taking part of the Smash World Tour circuit rather than Panda Cup. These allegations were corroborated by Beyond the Summit staff. These alleged threats may have had little to no bite as Dr. Allen isn't an employee for Nintendo and it's uncertain if he has authority in such matters. In a statement made to both Kotaku and IGN, Nintendo pushed back at some of the claims made by Smash World Tour, saying that while a license wasn't granted to the circuit, for the sake of the players that had already competed, it would not stop the finals from happening. Nintendo also said the Smash World Tour didn't meet certain health and safety guidelines but never expanded upon it. Nintendo did say Panda Global would continue to be a key partner. Panda made a statement last Friday saying it was surprised by the Smash World Tour's cancellation and the allegations made against Panda Cup. The statement doesn't answer many of the allegations levied against Dr. Allen, but did say the team regrets an interaction between him and Beyond the Summit. It summed it up to miscommunication and said it worked quickly to resolve the matter. Already, many players and staff members of Panda Global have resigned. Other top players have pulled out of Panda Cup, and popular Twitch streamer Ludwig Ogren has set up a side event to raise funds for VGBC, who say they've been hit financially by Nintendo's supposed cease and desist. As of this recording, Dr. Allen hasn't tweeted. To break down everything that's happened and bring a legal perspective is Connor Richards, a video game and esports lawyer for Odin Law and Media. Full disclosure, Connor represented me in contract negotiations with CNET. Connor, thank you so much for coming on to the show.
1: Happy to be here.
0: So, Connor, there's, I mean, th- this was probably the longest intro I've ever had to give uh, for a podcast episode, <laughs> uh, just because there's really so much going on here, and with you being in the space and you know looking at this from a legal perspective. Based on the various statements and back and forths, does Nintendo have the authority to cancel the Smash World Tour as it's been allowing the circuit to go on unofficially? I mean, couldn't the Smash World Tour sue for damages?
1: Uh, So the first thing is, anytime you're talking about pretty much a, a video game publisher exercising its rights over its intellectual property, the general answer is yes, they have the authority. Because the way that the Copyright Act works, Video game publishers that have created, developed the video game, absent any agreement they have to to give those rights to someone else, they have pretty much monopolistic, dictatorial authority here. Um, So just because Nintendo doesn't like an individual event organizer, or doesn't think an event's going to be run the way that they want it to be, they have the ability to step in and say, you can't run this event. That's in the abstract. Um, But like you said, There are a lot of different statements here with a lot of conflicting facts. And a lot of it is based on, you know, he said, she said type um, controversies. So it's tough to know exactly what's going on. There is actually a theory here where VGBC could sue Nintendo for damages. Um, And then there's a couple other floating claims around where VGBC could try to sue Panda Global or um, report Panda Global and Nintendo to the FTC or something like that. There are a couple of claims floating out here that have sort of varying degrees of strength and probability of success. Hmm. Um, so just just to like list the three claims that that have been discussed the most here, I'll list them in weakest to strongest, just to make it a little clearer. The first one is um, VGBC could, in theory, report Panda Global and Nintendo to the the uh, FTC, the Federal Tra- Trade Commission, for antitrust violations, which basically means You two have conspired together to depress competition, Mm. to make it so that nobody else in your space can act, can, can act in economic benefits, things like that. Um, that's typically the weakest because antitrust claims usually, uh, are dependent on definitions of your market. So what, what is the forum in which you're trying to get this economic success? We're here talking about one specific video game, Super Smash Brothers. That's that's probably too narrow for the FTC to consider that a full market. And if you look at something broader like fighting games or something like that, um, that encompasses far more than just Smash. Nintendo doesn't have all that much control over that, neither does Panda Global. Mm. And so it's not going to be looked at really as anti-competitive. And that's that's if you could even get their ear for something as small as you know, video game tournaments. Sometimes government entities take a little bit longer to catch up. Um, to the to these kind of things, hmm. this, the second potential claim is VGBC could sue Panda Global for something called tortuous interference. Um, basically, that's that's legalese, which means you have gone behind our backs and deliberately and unfairly interfered with our business or contractual relationships. Um, so as you are you're walking through your intro here, that's the Beyond the Summit example here. Um, VGBC, if they had a contract and an understanding with Beyond the Summit, um, if Panda Global approaches them and says, you need to break your contract because we have a license from Nintendo, they're going to shut you down. So we are threatening you with a shutdown if you don't breach your contract with them and come work with us instead. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is tortuous interference is a common law claim that how it looks depends a lot state to state. Um, and typically it's a really, really hard thing to prove because courts care about motive and intent. You need to have not even cared necessarily about your own economic gain. If you're Panda in this situation, you need to actually be trying to hurt VGBC in some situations. And that's even if, even if looking at their actions, you could conclude that that's going to be a really difficult thing to prove in a court. And then the last claim is probably the strongest Obviously, all of these are really dependent on what these conversations actually looked like um, and what what promises were made from one party to another. But the last one is something called promissory estoppel. This would be VGBC suing Nintendo. If you read VGBC's uh, statement on the whole controversy, this is actually a narrative that I think they're pretty clearly lying out, which is every step of the way, we've had conversations with Nintendo. They've told us, You're you're respecting our IP the way that we we want you to. You're putting on your events the right way. They're getting a lot of interest. We like what you're doing. We are going to get you a license. It's just, we have to go through the proper channels internally, but this is going to happen. And then in reliance on that promise, VGBC is investing in infrastructure. They are setting up these tournaments all over the world. Players are booking hotels and flights and things like that so that they can attend the championship. There's a monetary investment that is being made um, that then ends up being lost because at the 11th hour, Nintendo says, you can't run your tournament. The theory of promissory estoppel is there isn't a contract here, but there are promises a reasonable person would have relied upon. um, And then those promises weren't kept and there was calculable, provable damage here. That's, That's the theory of promissory estoppel.
0: I mean, well, if Nintendo is saying that, or at least uh, Smash World Tour is saying that Nintendo at one point was cool with them doing this tournament and then backed out last minute. But then Nintendo's coming back and saying that, no, this is not the case. We're actually letting people continue the event. I mean, why in your perspective hasn't the Smash World Tour just said, okay, well, I guess if Nintendo is making public that it's okay to run the event, why don't we just run the event?
1: So this is where the statements, the, the conflicting statements really come into play because mm-hmm. VGBC said – In talking to Nintendo, the day before Thanksgiving, they told us we're not going to give you a license. And VGBC says that that at that point, they specifically discussed with Nintendo the possibility of going forward with an event without a license and just kind of a – like you said, a wink and a nod approach. A, We know what we're doing is technically copyright infringement, but we can trust you not to try to enforce your rights over this tournament. Mm -hmm. Um, And Nintendo in response said – Those times of these wink and nod agreements are over. You need an official license, and we're not giving you one. So Nintendo isn't explicitly saying you're not allowed to run the tournament. But what they're saying, you can only come away concluding that you're not going to be able to run the tournament or Nintendo is going to take more deliberative steps to shut you down. Um, In the past, this is actually something that's happened before. Uh, The Big House in the past, which is a a popular tournament that occurs every year uh, up in Michigan, they received a, a communication like this from Nintendo in years past, mm-hmm. chose to move forward with the event anyway, and then they received a formal cease and desist from Nintendo shortly thereafter. Um, so that's what VGBC could be expecting here.
0: But then why would Nintendo make that statement to IGN? Isn't that just kind of like setting VGBC up for failure? Is like, I mean, could someone argue that they're trying to bait them into being sued or being sent to cease and desist?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the... A lot of interpreting these these various statements is, is trying to guess whether these different parties are operating in good faith or not. There's mm-hmm. a theory out here that Nintendo really doesn't like anyone running tournaments that they don't have very direct control over. And right. so they're going to use non-responsiveness. They're going to use um, third parties to... I mean, sabotage is a little bit of a strong word, but that's kind of what I mean here. It, to, to take down these events and make them really, really prohibitively difficult to run, because when you talk about a chilling effect, because you don't want tournaments to be run and you don't want people to think that they can get away with this, watching VGBC invest as many resources as they have into building this entire circuit and all the accompanying infrastructure and still being shut down is going to be really discouraging to people.
0: Yeah, its, it's, it's I I kind of wonder what... Panda, Panda Global did, that VGBC didn't, that allowed one organization to get the license and the other to ultimately not?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the definite question here. Um, I don't know fundamentally what's different about the two organizations. I mean, just, just immediate reactions off the top of my head. One thing that Nintendo has historically had a huge problem with and, and is borne out in some of these different statements is Nintendo is very protective of any alterations being made to their intellectual property. Um, That's the reason that we saw the Slippy program cause such controversy in the past. Mm -hmm. That's the reason, for example, that Nintendo stepped in on a a bunch of different occasions and shut down like Project M or Project Plus or any of these kind of fan-made modifications um, to the hardware or the software or the characters here. In the past, VGBC was one of the flagship tournament organizers for Project M. So that's something that people have cited as a Maybe there was just bad will here from from the beginning between Nintendo and VGBC. Obviously, I don't have any evidence that that's the case other than that idle speculation. Mm. Uh, But that's a differentiator between the two parties. Another one is Panda Global has an official license, right? And that means that they executed a licensing agreement that probably meant that they paid Nintendo through royalties or something like that in order to get that license but it also comes with a large amount of behavioral requirements. You are only going to use our license in X, Y, and Z ways. You're going to refrain from using it in A, B, and C ways. Um, And if there were any documents exchanged back and forth between VGBC and Nintendo regarding that license, there may be certain behaviors or use cases that Panda was okay with and VGBC wasn't, and that's not borne out in the statements necessarily
0: do we have any indication as to what these health and safety concerns were that Nintendo had? And I mean, I don't know if it were COVID related, uh, I mean, could such a justification hold up legally considering Nintendo held the uh, Splatoon three invitational at PAX West in September?
1: It's tough to say. Um, It it depends where these health and safety standards are coming from. Mm -hmm. So obviously if it, these are just Nintendo's internal health and safety standards, um, then they can do what they want a little bit in terms of how they interpret this stuff. And if they're going to hold something third party, they, it's easier for they to, them to give themselves a pass as far as what the health and safety standards look like. Um, if they're relying on legal standards and saying our health and safety standards are that you require with, that you comply with the most protective COVID standards in your jurisdiction or something like that, and VGBC was complying with them, then that wouldn't be a very good reason to hold a license like away from them. But the problem is because there's no existing contract, it's harder to prove that immediate damage. Mm -hmm. Um, it's one of those situations where you could sue for something called specific performance, which just means you have to do what the contract says you are going to do. Um, in a situation where you got a contract, it had self health and safety standards and you complied with them. Um, but given that no contract actually exists here, the justification is probably going to hold up because it's not relying on any specific legal principles. It's it's based on a contract that never materialized.
0: Some Smash influencers slash commentators have said, why not just throw on the Smash World Tour? I mean, are the an attorney going to call the cops and take the CRTs away. Could you maybe give your perspective on why that is or isn't a good strategy?
1: Yeah. So... The first thing is the influencers are probably right that the cops are not going to show up and drag <laughs> away all these CRTs. They're probably right because that's a little over the top, but but yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that they couldn't, in theory, uh, if they're trying to send like some message. the The thing that is really prohibiting Nintendo from taking serious serious action here is the the incredible amount of PR damage that would be created from flexing your IP related muscles in such a like fascistic way. Um, but what happens in practice is if you don't have an official license and you know that you could get shut down, what you lose is any of your publishing, promotion, marketing channels. So Twitch, for example, if Twitch gets a cease and desist from Nintendo and says, hey, you have to take this this content down, we own the content because it's our IP, uh, you're not going to be able to broadcast the tournament. Right um and so that means no twitch that means no youtube that means no facebook you can't you can't use any of those channels if you have none of those channels that means you have no advertising which means you have no sponsors because they they no longer get anything out of the tournament right um and so yeah in theory a whole bunch of people could meet up and drag their crts into like an individual's basement you know to play the tournament but you're not you're going to end up running pretty seriously in the red it's going to be difficult to give anyone a prize pot the tournament organizers are probably going to eat a, a pretty big cost. Same with you know the people putting on the tournament and promoting it and things like that. That's the that's the financial harm here. And to the extent that you have existing venue agreements or things like that, you may now be in breach of those agreements because you can't put on your event. Um, so Nintendo can basically contact all of the different third parties that are involved in the tournament in any way, let them know that this event is unauthorized. They pull out and the event. And ends up losing a a great deal of money
0: mm-hmm. you know in past episodes, we've talked about the lack of legal precedents when it comes to um, broadcasting rights for you know video game tournaments uh, and the such and really uh, if if I recall correctly, it's just that since none of this stuff has really been litigated, it all just kind of defaults to um. Uh, uh ip protection right or some uh, somebody's rights over a specific ip um since we last talked have there been any court cases that have kind of looked more into this and if not i mean is i mean theoretically speaking is this like a a good example or a good case to take to court
1: uh i don't think so for the reasons that you you just laid out there have not really been precedent setting cases there have been a couple controversies that have played out in different ways but in nearly all of those cases, those have avoided court. so the mm-hmm. the one that immediately jumps to mind, for example, is during the Olympics, a popular streamer named xqC um streamed the Olympics and streamed his commentary over it and was you know joking around, making fun of people, you know, ooh and aahing at like some of the impressive performances, that kind of stuff. And the Olympic Committee sent him a cease and desist. and that's that's a broadcast issue. They have the the rights here. XQC is broadcasting it. Yeah. Um, and Morrison Rothman, the law firm involved at the time, took the position that, hey, because he because XQC is broadcasting, adding commentary and doing all these different things, that's fair use. It's transformative. It meets all the other elements of fair use that are necessary here. Um, in theory, people have batted around the idea that putting on a tournament, adding commentators, adding these these players play to the tournament could constitute fair use and could allow them to broadcast this stuff even though the individual IP is um, involved. The problem is Morrison Rothman announced that they were going to broadcast anyway, that XQC was going to broadcast anyway, and that if necessary, they would defend against the Olympic Committee in court, mm-hmm. and it never went to court. Interesting. And that's kind of how these cases have played out. One, The two sides kind of stare at each other and take varying degrees of – you know, strong stances depending on the risk tolerance that they're okay with. But as a result of that, we haven't gotten any, any case precedent. That's something that a lot of lawyers in the space are hoping for is the wrong word because you end up with a damaged party and nobody wants that. But there's so much that's unclear as a result of this stuff. And as a result, most people default towards the position that the IP rights holder can do whatever they want.
0: Mm-hmm. But even then, the Olympics aren't like a one to one example of a video game tournament because uh, the, uh, like an Olympics or something that's recorded, let's say a movie that is set in stone, right? Like you can't, uh, the, con- the the content inherently is unchangeable because it's pre-recorded, right, or broadcast yes. live in this, can't, in this case. But video games are inherently transformative in that you're manipulating what's happening on screen so no two people have the exact same experience, right? Um, so, I, you know, it, I mean, am I am I right in saying that the, Olymp, the Olympics case with XUC isn't, like, the perfect analog?
1: Yeah, and, and for exactly the reasons that you just laid out. And all of those reasons are reasons that would break further towards the IP rights holder having additional rights because it is a fundamental property of the medium that you can exploit it in all these different ways and make, you know, any individual game look very, very different because of the mechanics that are inherent to the game. Mm-hmm. um and so all of those things mean it's more likely the ip rights holder is going to have total control here
0: hmm, that's interesting yeah i i would think of course i have you know no, no no legal understanding here but because of the uniqueness that each individual can bring uh to a video game if you treat the game as a tool right let's say paintbrushes brushes and in, you know i need an easel uh, or if you argue it in such a such a sense then um There has to be a a willingness, or an ability, or a flexibility in allowing that to be broadcast because uh, it's so unique, and that it gives viewers um, a a unique, yeah, a uniquely novel perspective that the rights holder could then be inhibiting.
1: Yeah, you're you're exactly right. You a video game is a set of tools that you can then use to express yourself. that's one of the things that people love about Smash as a fighting game is the fact that it feels so expressive. You have so much freedom of movement, freedom to play different ways and things like that. Um, the, The problem here, as far from a rights perspective, is all of the different brand elements because one game involving Mario versus Peach may look very, very different depending on the players and the play styles and things like that. But you're still talking about Mario fighting Peach on Pokemon Stadium. You're still talking about these like brand identifiable characters that when you talk about audience members that are not quite as engaged in the game they're going to see Mario and be like oh this this sounds like something cool to watch because if it's just the mechanics if it's just the the fundamental expressiveness of the game that you like that's attractive to you then the theory is you could walk away and create a game with substantially those same properties just without those brand elements and then Mm. that would be fine that's what one of the things that you and I have talked about before is um Rise, Rivals of Aether, mm-hmm. which is a platform fighter that borrows some of the similar like game mechanics as Super Smash Brothers melee, but tweaks them in really interesting ways. And all of the IP is completely original right. um, with the exception of a couple characters that have that are licensed from other games. Um, but there is no Nintendo crossover there, so that means that they can they can do what they want with their game.
0: I don't know. I I personally, just out of curiosity, I'd I'd like to see such a case go to court. Obviously, the costs would be immense, right? I mean, I I couldn't even imagine how how expensive a case between, like, VGBC and Nintendo would get over this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would get really pricey because Nintendo is a huge company. They are historically very um, serious with Mm -hmm. protecting their IP. So, I mean, they're going to... You know, be using all of their, bringing all of their resources to bear in order to exercise those rights. Um, It is
0: estimated would cost millions.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it it depends too how long you would want to go for because yeah, the way that the court process works, you initially have you know negotiations throughout because you can settle pretty much at any point, and then you have actual litigation in court, you know, Perry Mason style. Um, But then you also have degrees of appeal, and when you're talking about novel copyright issues. It may be that you want to target the Supreme Court in order for this to be a nationwide precedent, but that yeah. gets insanely expensive because you're talking about litigating this for years at the highest at the highest forums in the country.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think at that point, um, it would probably be too difficult for any one law firm to really take on, especially you know on a pro bono basis or even at a severely discounted rate. And you, maybe it would take a rights organization like maybe the Electronic Frontier Foundation to um, help out and help out with the costs. I don't know if this is just me conjecturally speaking.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, so you're right. What would happen typically is at the trial court level early on, you would have parties involved that have really niche subject matter knowledge. Um, and then as you move through the process, you get firms that are more specialized in specifically like oral argumentation because the forum mm-hmm. changes fundamentally when you're talking about appellate courts. Um, and then as you, as you scale up, to all of these higher courts with larger jurisdictions where this precedent is going to be applicable. What you get is a whole bunch of third parties with interests in the litigation that are going to submit something called amicus curiae briefs yeah. um, that explain like this precedent is really going to matter because it's going to have these downstream effects. Um, and because of, of like we've discussed the novelty of this issue, I would imagine you're going to get a lot of those. Um, and typically you don't pay for them because they're they're side people that are representing their own interests um but it does mean that logistically it gets a little complicated because you know you're splicing together arguments from these briefs that you find that are especially salient that you want to use um and so it would be uh, a very hairy process for sure but incredibly fascinating
0: yeah what amicus Curiae it, it, it's what it translates to friends of the court if i Ex-
1: exactly right yep. yeah, yeah, yeah friends of the court
0: so in, in this case i mean if this were to go to trial would I guess Sony and Nintendo just kind of, or Sony and Microsoft kind of back Nintendo in this case and try to bring in their own briefs or whatever to bolster the IP side.
1: Uh, yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, typically parties don't do that as a party. It's it's like political donations. Like they they could donate typically through super PACs or things like that. You would have some kind of a, a larger organization that these publishers are part of that would submit a, a brief that they can all agree on yeah um, but the thing is, even publishers that are friendlier to things like tournaments um and modifications made to their i p they're they're not going to want a precedent set nationwide that hinders the exercise of those rights where they do see a real issue um mm. and I don't know that that would be be fair necessarily in the first place and then one thing that that you and I have talked about before is courts don't typically like to decide really like hot button and especially really, really detailed, like granular issues. And this is something that may really need to be solved by a um, renewed understanding of the Copyright Act or a reformed Mm. Copyright Act to um, deal with these kind of problems in so far as, you know, the voting population sees this as a problem. Um, And so all these are different things that can affect the court's jurisprudence.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't I can't even think of any lawmakers on the top off the top of my head that really care about esports broadcast rights. I mean, there are some lawmakers in Silicon Valley that are more attuned to maybe some of this stuff, maybe like Rochanna out of Silicon Valley. Um, But, yeah, considering inflation and all the wackiness that's going on in the current in our current politic, uh, (laughs) I mean, does anybody come to mind?
1: It, nobody does come to mind and i'm not I, i'm not sure this is even the most pressing uh issue like in the tech world i mean yeah. there's been a lot of discussion for example of like user data as a commodity and how we should be handling that i mean i think that's probably a more pressing issue than you know being able to to necessarily carve out your right to stream fighting game tournaments
0: <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so it's it, it's definitely an unfortunate situation for from what it's sounding like, all parties involved. I don't think Nintendo likes the bad PR. I don't think VGBC likes the huge financial hit and having to cancel this organization. Uh, Panda Global probably doesn't like eighty percent of its team quitting and potentially the end of the organization itself, which is unfortunate because Panda Global for the longest time had had been such an advocate of the fighting games community, uh, and to see it put in this, I don't know situation, it's. Uh, I, I, I feel that everyone just comes out a loser at the end of this.
1: No, I agree. It, it's a very it's a really brutal situation, and this gets back to the he said, she said stuff. I yeah. mean, Panda Global released a statement and said basically that um, there were allegations made, obviously, that the CEO was approaching all these different tor- tournament organizers saying, mm-hmm. hey, work with us or you're going to get shut down. Um, and they said there was only one situation where this happened. It was an unfortunate conversation where just tempers flared. Um, between the CEO and beyond the summit. This is an isolated incident. It's being blown out of proportion. And if that's true, then, then playing the Global has, has really gotten a raw deal here in terms of the amount of people that have stepped back. The question is how much credibility you assign to them given their role in everything. Um, yeah. And I don't know, that's gonna depend on your individual view. I don't
0: know if um, if it'll be the end of Panda or if Dr. Allen will resign to try to keep the organization afloat because maybe people are upset with him, but maybe not other le- other people in leadership. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's
1: yeah, I don't have any insight there either, yeah. and it's it is unfortunate because you know, I know people who work at Panda who mm-hmm. have really poured their hearts out for this community over the past couple years, and it is I mean, again, we're assuming that there was there was systemic like wrongdoing here, but if that was the case, it's a bit of a a bit of a reminder that you as an organization have to have checks and accountability for everyone on the ladder because yeah. if if Alan really did have the ability to approach all these different tournament organizers and issue these kinds of, of things that look like threats and nobody was aware of it or able to correct him or, or step in and say, Hey, you, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. It's, it's going to be unfair to the community. You're going to cause damage. Um, uh, then that's an organizational issue that they'll, they'll have to figure out how to correct.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really also, it's upsetting, honestly, that some staff members, and employees are getting docs online for just being, employees of Panda Global. uh, Completely agree. That's horrible. And I I doubt anybody who's listening to this podcast has been doxing people, but in case there has been anybody, um, could you explain why um, (laughs) it's wrong to dox people on the internet, um, at least from a legal perspective?
1: You are inviting uh, very tailored, targeted personal harassment, and you are doing it to individuals who in many cases have done absolutely nothing wrong. Who have no idea of their affiliation with someone who is doing, you know, incorrect things. I mean, I'm not somebody who's like a huge like cancel culture critic. I think in a lot of cases it's not, you know, particularly real. But the idea that you can invite personal harassment on individual people through this like online vigilante justice is not something that um, is okay. You are causing a lot of damage to people who haven't done anything wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and. If you're found out, you can get in a lot of trouble.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. There are a lot of legal consequences for doing that too.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, Connor, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I know this was a bit a bit of a longer episode, but uh, there, there was definitely a lot to get into. And um, again, really appreciate your
1: perspective. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a great time.
0: And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the .esports podcast network. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and share follow Connor and keep up to date on esports legal content and World Cup commentary, you can find him at, exhibit at Law on Twitter. That's X-Z-I-B-I-T-A-T-L-A-W. To follow me and my work over at CNET, you can find me at Imad on Twitter. And with that, we'll catch you guys next week.